Good evening. Turn over in your Bibles to the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk. Habakkuk. Five books back from the end of the Old Testament. We're going to be uh, continuing our study in the book of Habakkuk tonight in chapter 2. But we've been looking at this series now for several weeks, Strong Faith, Perverted Justice. And it's really a study through the book of Habakkuk. He was dealing with some pretty incredible events in his society, and we see similar things around us today. And so the question that Habakkuk is answering or asking is really, where is God when your world falls apart? That's a question that he had to deal with, he wrestled with some 2,500 years ago. Um, How do we have faith when life doesn't make sense? And we need to learn, as Habakkuk did, that nobody's going to get away with anything. Sometimes we think that, boy, where is justice? Um, We're going to read in our text tonight, we're going to pick up where we left off in verse 14 of chapter 2 and read through verse 20 and hopefully finish out this chapter tonight. But we're talking about the Lord in his holy temple. We get that from verse 20. And this is uh, kind of part two. We, We did the first several verses last week. And you can get that message on the app or on the website. But let's begin reading in verse 14, and we'll read down through verse 20 of Habakkuk chapter 2. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. Verse 16, you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you. In utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities, and all who dwell in them. Verse 18. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, And there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you for this conclusion to chapter 2 tonight. Concluding that you are clearly in your holy temple. Father, we thank you that you have provided a way for us to have a relationship with you, our holy God. We don't have any righteousness in and of ourselves. Our righteousness, our holiness comes through the Lord Jesus Christ when we trust in his sacrifice on Calvary for our sin. And so, Father, we pray tonight that you would lead us and guide us through our study as we finish up chapter 2. And, Lord, as we are reminded that nobody gets away with anything, what a man sows, that shall he reap one day. And Father, we just thank you that you have been gracious to us in our lives, that we've come to know you as our Lord and Savior, as we trust in you each day, to give us the grace and the strength through the power of the Holy Spirit in your word to live a life 
that's honoring to you here in this world. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've seen the reaction of the prophets to the corruption of his time. We've seen the response of God to the prophets' reaction in verse 1, or chapter 1. We also saw the recognition of the character and plan of God, the reluctance of the prophet to speak until he hears from the Lord. That was the beginning of verse 2, verses 1 through 4. And then we saw the reasons in verses 5 to 8 of chapter 2 why judgment of God would come. And last week we looked at the revenge that would come upon the Babylonians in verses 6 to 8. Well, tonight we're going to look at the results, the results which God will bring upon those who sin against him. What exactly is God going to do? That's the question. And we've mentioned these four woes, and they've, the easiest way to outline this part of Habakkuk is with the four woes. And the first one is dealing with coveting. There's four sins, four woes that will bring about God's judgment. And he says last week we looked at um, verses 9 to 14, and we saw the first two. One was coveting, that which does not belong to you. And then secondly, constructing a city and culture with blood and iniquity. In other words, uh, taking advantage of other people. It says, woe to him who does that. And so tonight, uh, we, we, we finished off last week with verse 14, which is a glorious verse. It says, but the earth will be covered with the knowledge of the glory of, of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. See, God pulls back the curtain just to give us a little glimpse of the world as it will be when Jesus comes back. There's a time coming when the earth, it says, will be filled, not with the knowledge of bloodshed, not with pornography or immorality or injustice or greed. God intends to fill the whole earth, in verse 14 it says, with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, as completely as the waters cover the sea. It's significant that he mentions the earth, and he means it quite literally there. He's talking about this ball of dirt that we live on. Uh, he means this earth we currently inhabit. Now, this earth, the same earth that had no room for the Son of God, that mocked his words and doubted his character, that refused to believe that he was the Messiah, the earth that falsely accused him, that preferred to let a guilty man go free instead of allowing the Lord to go free. The earth that hated what Jesus stood for, accused him of being in the league with the devil himself. The earth that beat him without mercy, the earth that made him carry his own cross, the earth that crucified him between two thieves, the earth that watched him die in agony. God intends to bring his son back to this earth, back to the same world that rejected him the first time. And that's why he says, one day the glory of the Lord will fill the earth. The Bible says one day every knee will bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, we're not there yet, obviously, but one day it will be a day with injustice gone 
It will be a day when violence is gone, terror is gone, threats are gone, abuse is gone, pornography is gone, divorce is gone, abortion is gone, perversion is gone, liars are gone, blasphemers are gone. See, it's, a, it's giving us a vision of victory in that better day that's coming. Not to some other world, mind you, but to this world. I mean, it's hard to believe that today because the world is filled with so much violence and injustice. We see cruelty, we see killing all around us. And so we long in our hearts for that better day. And someday this world will be pristine and beautiful again. God, we pray it would be soon. Even so, come Lord Jesus, amen. So we looked at the coveting last week. We looked at constructing a city of blood and iniquity. And tonight, thirdly, the third point this brings us to in verse 15 is committing others to alcoholism and sexual immorality. He ties those two together in verses 15 to 17. This passage is clearly a condemnation of all sorts of illicit sexual behavior, pornography included. But it also contains a message about drunkenness that's very clear, and that's the first point there. Verse 15, woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk. Now, this is a rather divisive subject to some. I don't know how it can be, because all you have to do is look at what the Word of God says. Here is God's condemnation for those who use alcohol as a tool of seduction for immoral purposes. Now, we all understand that alcohol has a tendency to change people's behavior. A person under the influence of alcohol will say and usually do things that they would not normally say or do. That's usually why they use alcohol. I mean, where would Las Vegas be? Do you ever think about that without alcohol? Where would uh, college campuses and frat parties be without alcohol? Where would conventions be without alcohol? Where would the restaurant industry be without alcohol? See, God promises judgment on those who use alcohol as a tool to lead others into immorality. Now, some people may justify it in their own mind, but God will not be fooled. When you entice another person to drink, so with the intention of lowering their standards, the Bible says you come against the Almighty God himself. Um, what he's saying here is that alcohol was used to entice others to sin. And uh, he points that out clearly. Now, according to most reports, um, the 10 most important public health problems and concerns, this is pre-COVID, mind you, um, in the U.S., number one on the list is substance and alcohol-related harms. Number one. Uh, some studies say that alcoholism is the number two health risk after uh, uh, heart disease. I found this statistic interesting. Every 20th alcoholic is under the age of 13. That's mind-boggling to me. 3.3 million teenagers have drinking problems due to, due to alcohol. 
More than 42 million children live in alcoholic-dependent houses. And 50% of them will become alcoholics themselves. Four out of 10 hospital admissions, 50% of car accidents, 55% of arrests, 64% of murders, 60% of child abuse cases are all alcohol-related. Think about that. Every 23 minutes, studies say someone dies because of someone who's driving under the influence of alcohol. Is it no wonder that in Proverbs 20, verse 1, the Bible says, Wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. See, we have to be very cautious when it comes to the subject of alcohol. God has said what alcohol is, strong drink. God has said what this drink brings. And I would just say, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Christ and you're dabbling in this area, um, the Bible really calls you a fool. You don't want to mess around with this. In verse 15, when you read that, it's, it's almost like in Habakkuk there, it's almost like they're, I'm reminded of the command not to take advantage of a younger brother um, in, in the Lord, a weaker brother in the Lord. Because even if you're a Christian and you don't have a problem drinking alcohol socially, um, maybe you're not drunk on a regular basis, but you go out and you drink in front of others or whatever, um, you might want to think that you, you, you could be causing another brother or sister in the Lord to be stumbling. And God takes that very seriously. It's the law of the weaker brother. I mean, you might think, well, I can handle it. It's not a problem. But you might be causing them to stumble, causing them to be drunk. So the word of God pronounces upon you that you be careful in this area. If you even go back to verse 5 of chapter 2 of Habakkuk, remember what it started out with. It says, moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Now, this is clearly talking about the Babylonians but it starts with alcohol. It starts with wine. His drive, his desire to inhabit the earth and swallow up everything that he saw and make it part of his empire was driven by alcohol. And you, you see that throughout the word of God. These men who were totally given to wine um, wine motivated them to brutish behavior. We've already looked at how cruel that nation was and how filled with a bunch of drunks it was. Remember in Daniel chapter 5, and all the way down, it tells about the downfall of the Babylonian Empire. They were having a debauched, drunken orgy. And Darius the, the Mede took the kingdom. Um, 
I mean, think about the implications. Belshazzar was killed. The empire changed from the Babylonians to the Medo-Persian empire. And it all began through a drink. <laughs> so we see clearly that the message about drunkenness is clear. Secondly, you see the motivation that's connected here to immorality and humiliation. It says in verse uh, 15, Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. A couple of things about alcohol from this passage. First of all, alcoholism a lot of times entices sexual sin. That's what he's talking about there in verse 15. What alcohol does is it lowers a person's inhibitions about certain things. And uh, people do certain things when they're drunk that they would never even consider doing when they're sober. Uh, if you don't believe me, just look at the Word of God. Remember Noah? He didn't do it, but he had something done to him. And he was in his tent because he had made a, a vineyard for himself, it says, and he planted it after the flood. And imagine this man of God, Noah. Well, what did he do? He had gotten drunk from his own hands. And he was in his tent, and the Scripture says that his son uncovered his nakedness. We don't need to go into all the, how inappropriate this passage in Scripture is. But drink, alcohol, was the origin of that sin. You think about Lot. Remember Lot? He's drunken. He got drunk from whose hand? Not even his own hand, but the hands of his very daughters. Why? Because they had a plan to seduce him, which is just sick when you think about it. And drink, alcohol, was the origin of, of that incestual sin. See, this is what alcohol has brought into the world. Such sin as this, all you have to do is go down to certain areas, even of our small town here, and certain times in the night, you'll see the effects of alcohol. On college campuses, how many women, how many girls are taken advantage of because of alcohol? They wake up the next day, they don't even remember what happened. See, the message about alcohol is very clear. The motivation here is connected to immorality and humiliation, but it also talks about the manner in which such practices are described, and that's using the word shamefulness. Verse 16 says, you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around you and utter shame will come upon your glory. Not only deals with sexual sin, but it also deals with shame. There's tremendous shame involved with alcohol. Have you ever seen somebody that was just 
very, very drunk to the point where they getting sick. It's, it's a disgusting, shameful place to go. It's really detestable. And it's due to alcohol. So that was their motive for doing it because it says they, they uncovered their, their nakedness and that was a shameful thing to do. And, and what their, God is saying here is what you have done to others, taking advantage of, of them, guess what? It's going to come full circle. It's going to come back to you. And so you see the manner of these things is not glorious, it's literally shameful. But then it says, the cup of the Lord's right hand shall be turned unto you. This is the means God will use to punish such behavior. God's saying, you know what? You filled my, my cup of wrath so much that now you're going to drink it. You're going to have to spew it. And that will be the glory that you have. A shameful glory. I mean, God doesn't mince his words here at all. And th these problems characterize those who, the Bible says, tarry long at the wine. That they go to seek mixed wine. The Bible teaches that there's various stages of fermentation that should not be looked at or desired upon because it's strong drink. It alters your personality. It alters the way you think. It alters your reactions. And the Bible connects drunkenness, as we said, with sexual immorality. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 10, drunkards, those who are given to alcohol, are listed among those who will not, will not inherit the kingdom of God. I mean, praise God that 1 Corinthians 6.11 teaches that we can be washed from these practices, that there is forgiveness in Christ. Galatians chapter 5, verse 21, lists drunkenness as part of the works of the flesh. And that those who do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So we have to be very, very careful as believers about our testimony, about our own walk, about our own um, proclivity to drink alcohol. Be careful. Proverbs 31, 4-7 reveals why kings and princes should not drink strong drink. It says, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the judgment of any of the afflicted. So you can't do your job if you're given to this. Strong drink in the Bible is... It's like a sedative. And it, it should be given to those who are ready to perish and to those that be of heavy heart, it says. In Proverbs 23, verses 29 to 35, it reveals specific dangers about alcohol abuse. In verse 29, it says, Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Guess what? Those who tarry long over wine. 
those who go to try mixed wine. Do not look at the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart utter perverse things. You will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on the top of a mast. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. Because <laughs> they're drunk. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. It's sad. You see emotional problems, you see arguments, you see words that don't make sense, fighting without any just cause, physical, emotional weariness. These are all fruits of a life that would be given to alcohol and abuse of alcohol. Well, we not only see this as the means that God will punish such behavior, but also in verse 17, it talks about the memory of their attack upon Lebanon will not go unpunished. In other words, God doesn't miss anything. He doesn't forget anything. You know, sometimes something happens in, in society and we think, boy, that person never got justice. They will. They will. One day. The NIV translates this verse, verse 17, the violence you have done to Lebanon will overwhelm you and your destruction of animals will terrify you. For you have shed man's blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. So he's saying what these Babylonians went about doing, it's going to come back on them. And you really see here the, the drinking that brought squander. They had so much opportunity and wealth, but they squandered it. They wasted their resources that they acquired by conquering all these other nations. And basically the point is, you know what? You're going to reap what you sow. You go around abusing alcohol and hurting other people. Well, you know what? One day it's going to come back on you. And so we see the coveting, the constructing of a city with blood and sinfulness and also the committing of others to alcohol and sexual immorality. The last thing here in the passage, verses 18 to 20, you see controlling people through the lies of idolatry and pagan practices. Verse 18, it says, what, what profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies, for, it makes, it, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. I mean, who in their right mind would believe that praying to a lifeless stone or a piece of wood would make any difference. I mean, you can pray to a stone all you want, bow down to a wooden altar all you want, work yourself into a frenzy. It's not going to do you any good. Your prayers will go unanswered. 
because those idols have no life. I grew up in a church where it was filled with idols. The wood cannot hear, the stone cannot speak. It's a complete waste of time. And that's why he just kind of says, stop, hush. The Lord is in his temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. See, idolatry deceives people into thinking that there's some profit in making these images. That's what the Reformation was all about, right? The Catholic Church was taking indulgences and selling things and idols and trinkets and all kinds of things in order to earn God's grace. It was based on deception. I remember growing up, I had a St. Christopher medal. Got it when my sister took me over to uh, Rome, Italy. We were at the Vatican. I actually bought, bought, she bought it there for me. Very cherished thing. I was Catholic and had the St. Christopher medal around my neck. And I remember one time I was up in the woods playing and I got home, took in a, was taking a shower and I reached down and I realized, wow, the medal's gone. And I can't believe the panic that put in my heart thinking I lost the St. Christopher medal. Somehow God is going to judge me. And no lie, for years I looked for that medal thinking, wow, I just retraced my steps. I'm sure I'll find it. God, please. Silly idol. Silly idol. It, it works from deception. It's a teacher of lies. Secondly, it depends on that which can do nothing to help. Even though it looks good <laughs> and it costs a lot. Notice it says that as well, it's, it's covered with metal, gold, and silver. It looks shiny. It looks like, wow, that, that must be something really, really profitable. Overlaid with gold and silver. But guess what? There's no breath in it. There's nothing there. It can't help you. Not only deceives people, and it depends on that which can't help, but it distracts people from the truth about the worship and presence of God. And that's why he says, but, in verse 20, but the Lord is in his holy temple, right there for you. He's right there. And he's gained, allowed you to have access through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when people bring up these idols, what happens? It distracts people from the truth about who God is and how we should be worshiping him and him alone. And then lastly here, quickly, it denies that there are any consequences for such beliefs. It says, let all the earth keep silence before him. Let all the earth keep silent before him. See, people think that they can worship these idols and nothing's going to happen. One day they will be judged. One day they will stand before the Lord God, their creator. And I think it's an incredible verse, verse 20. Because it's not really a word of exhortation or encouragement or direction or anything you're going to get from this idol, nothing. But listen, there's a God in heaven 
who knows what's going on. He knows your heartaches. He knows your concerns. He knows your temptations, your tribulations. There is the Lord Jehovah who is in his holy temple. And let all the world keep silent before him. This is saying, Christian, take encouragement. God is in control. He's on the throne. He's in the driver's seat. And he will answer in his own time. The word says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. We just need to learn to wait. Wait on the Lord. That's what the Bible instructs us to do. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. I know this was a shorter study, but Lord, we pray that as we finished up chapter two here and looked at... Um, the sins of alcoholism and idol worship. Lord, that you would convict our own heart if there's anything in our own lives that would lead in this direction. Father, that we would repent and turn from that and put our focus back on you, the true God, the one who's able to allow us to live lives that are honoring to you each and every day through the power of your spirit. Father, if there's anyone listening to this message even now, maybe on the app or online, Lord, that you would uh, convict their heart of their sin, that you would help them not to be distracted by all the things of this world, but they would focus on one thing, their eternal soul. One day their eternal soul will stand, will be before you. And I pray that while they're able, they will now trust in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ who came to this earth, lived a perfect life, was a perfect sacrifice, died a cruel death, was raised on the third day, all for the purpose of paying our debt, paying our sin. And we put our faith and trust in his sacrifice and in him as our Lord and Savior. And we turn from our own lives and we, we turn to the Savior and commit our lives to him. The Bible says that he makes us a new creation in Christ. He deposits the Holy Spirit within us. He opens our spiritual eyes so that we can understand and read and comprehend the, the spiritual book of the Word of God, the Bible. Father, I pray for each one listening that you would encourage their hearts, that you're a God who makes many promises and never defaults on one. And so, Father, we pray tonight that you would just dismiss us with your blessing. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.